Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Malott, and you're listening to Freshfield's Essential Antitrust Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about Microsoft's $69 billion acquisition of Activision, and in particular, about the warring decisions that have come out in the last couple of weeks, one prohibition and one conditional clearance. Since the deal was first announced in the beginning of 2022, it's been moving through merger review processes around the world, most notably in the UK, in the EU, the US, and in China. From an antitrust perspective, it's really been an interesting test case for a number of key trends and developments that we're seeing more broadly in these sort of high innovation digital markets. But today we're going to focus on the decisions from the CMA and the EC. Both of those authorities conducted in-depth phase two investigations. Both of them identified competition concerns in the market for cloud gaming services, and both were offered a broadly similar remedy package by Microsoft. However, at the end of the day, they came to different conclusions on the sufficiency of that remedy package, with the CMA rejecting the remedies and blocking the deal on April 26th, which Microsoft has said it's appealing, and the EC deciding to accept those remedies and conditionally clear the deal on May 15th. So to discuss the nuances underpinning these two different results and the key learnings for future deals, I'm joined today by two of our antitrust partners from London. First, we have Ricky Haria. Hi, Ricky. Hey, Jen. And we also have Jenny Leahy on the phone. Hi, Jenny. Hey, Jen. Good to be here. Now, before we go further, I should say that Ricky and Jenny are our two newest partners in our antitrust competition and trade practice globally. They both joined us in the partnership as of May 1st, and we are so delighted for both of them and so happy to have them as part of our partnership in the antitrust team in London. So many congratulations to you both. Ricky, I want to start with you. This is a merger that obviously has attracted a lot of attention across the globe. Um, And I wonder if you might start by just helping us dig in a little bit to understand what exactly were the competition concerns here. Yeah, sounds great. So let's start by looking into where the CMA and the European Commission found competition concerns. So Activision Blizzard developed a whole host of different games, including most notably Call of Duty, but also games like World of Warcraft and Candy Crush. This was a vertical deal, given Microsoft has a gaming business currently centered around its Xbox console. And the main competition issue that was investigated by the authorities was whether Microsoft could weaken rival gaming providers, either by withholding or degrading access to this gaming content, most notably focused around Call of Duty. While both authorities investigated the impact of the transaction in both the console space, which is currently the main way that consumers play games, and also the cloud gaming space, they both eventually only found concerns in cloud gaming. Cloud gaming is one of those nascent and fast developing markets. It currently has relatively low uptake, but the authorities thought that this was a very high potential growth area. And by virtue of making high performance games accessible to a new pool of customers who would not need to invest in sophisticated consoles and high end PCs. In articulating their concerns, both authorities emphasized Microsoft's strong position in adjacent and related markets. There was really the combination of its Xbox platform with the number of gaming development studios, operating system windows, and also its cloud infrastructure, which is what was the real focus. And the regulators were concerned that when combining all of these things together, that could enable Microsoft to cement its position in the nascent cloud gaming markets. Okay, so, so far so good. You know, we have the EC and the CMA broadly looking at the same issues, um, coming to the same conclusions. But why did we get to a different 
outcome in the two jurisdictions at the end of the day. Jen, where the authorities ended up differing was in the way they treated the importance of Activision's titles and content for the competitive offering of cloud gaming services in that nascent market and thinking about how it would continue to grow and develop. And that goes to the broader question of the counterfactual. So how would cloud gaming continue to develop? What types of business models would emerge and so on? And that assessment in turn and the divergence there also had implications on the assessment of the viability of Microsoft's remedies. And this is really an area where we're now seeing real world divergence between the CMA and the European Commission. And that flows from a difference in the legal bar and the guidelines around assessing such questions. So in particular, the CMA is clear in its updated merger assessment guidance that significant uncertainty in terms of how a dynamic or a nascent market will evolve shouldn't be interpreted as meaning that the merger is unlikely to give rise to competition concerns or indeed that the standard of proof is not capable of being met in the face of such uncertainty. And that then also has read across to merger remedies, where the CMA has really shown itself to have a much lower tolerance for uncertainty as to the effectiveness of a remedy, especially for behavioural remedies, and especially in dynamic markets. So in this case, there was a concern on the part of the CMA about whether the remedy would fully support the different types of business model that could emerge in the future in this nascent cloud gaming market. And on the contrary, the EC considered that if it had conducted, as it had, a robust market test and the feedback from market participants on the remedy was broadly positive, then it would be hard pressed to reject a remedy offered by the parties. And that divergence is exactly the type of issue that we saw play out, for example, in the cargo tech deal as well. Okay, so you just touched upon the divergence in the approach to remedies in this case, which was clearly a major factor in the different conclusions that the CMA and the EC reached. Can you talk a little bit more about why that was the case? So taking a step back, Microsoft sought to convince regulators to accept behavioral remedies. And they offered the CMA and the European Commission broadly the same remedy package, which was based on long-term access commitments to Activision's titles and content. And in fact, Microsoft had already signed deals with a number of industry players to effectively help get their remedies package over the line. And that was likely a sensible strategy in terms of trying to get broader industry support for the deal and for the remedy proposal. But it didn't quite work with the CMA in the way that it did play out positively in Europe. And again, I think fundamentally that comes back to differences in legal standards, a different approach to access to file, including access to remedy feedback. And those are probably key drivers in in terms of the divergence that we are seeing. Vicky, would you agree with that? Yeah, fully agreed. I think there are important differences in legal standards in the ability of parties to access each authority's file, which contains all the evidence and documents in the investigation, and also the appeals process. And all of these things are quite important in understanding why you might get different outcomes in different jurisdictions, even where the authorities are looking at global markets, where the underlying facts may be quite similar across the different jurisdictions. We saw that recently in the merger of Cargo Tech and Cone Cranes, which was abandoned after the CMA rejected a mix-and-match remedy which had been approved by the European Commission. And similar to the Microsoft case here, we understand that there was generally quite positive market feedback in support of the remedy package and that this moved the EC to clear. But the CMA felt that its concerns around the effectiveness of the remedy alone were enough to prohibit, setting aside 
some of these industry views on the remedy proposal. And on this, it's important to note that parties generally have more insight into remedies feedback in the EC process compared to the UK process. And that stems from the access to file process that, that we sort of just touched on. And that in part may explain the divergence. Another important difference is appeal standards. So in the UK, appeals are based on judicial review standards, and that sets quite a high bar. It means the competition appeal tribunal can only really intervene or set aside decisions on quite high grounds of illegality, irrationality and procedural unfairness. And that means a lot of deference is shown to the CMA, including on these types of dynamic forward-looking theories of harm and also how remedy proposals are assessed. And so we've spoken a bit about the UK perspective and the EU perspective on behavioural remedies. But Jen, this is also all playing out in real time in the US. So what sort of US overlay do you see here? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So in the US, uh, the process has been a bit ahead of the of the UK and the EU in that the FTC sued to block the transaction back in December. And they were looking both at a similar cloud gaming theory to what you've described for the EC and the CMA, but also we're looking at, at a more traditional vertical foreclosure theory um, and focusing on Microsoft's record of acquiring gaming content to suppress competition from rival gaming consoles. With respect to the remedy point, there is some philosophical alignment between the FTC and the DOJ and the CMA in terms of having a, a broad preference for structural remedies over behavioral remedies. In the U.S., at least on paper, there's not the same hardline aversion to behavioral remedies that especially the CMA seems to have, where they say, you know, never do we want to accept these. I think, you know, in the current enforcement environment with the, the FTC and the DOJ, behavioral remedies in the U.S. would also be an extremely tough sell, which, you know, is why we end up in this similar position with a suit to block in the U.S., where if it was possible to do a behavioral remedy on the lines of what the EC would accept, surely the parties would have done it. But maybe, Jenny, switching back over to the U.K., we mentioned that Microsoft has already said that it's going to appeal the CMA decision. What does that actually look like in practice? How does an appeal of a merger decision in the UK work? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And so as Vicky briefly touched on, appeals of merger decisions to the Competition Appeals Tribunal in the UK are on judicial reviews grounds. And that's a really high bar for parties to overcome. So the timings of appeals can vary for a number of reasons, but broadly speaking, actually, the appeals process is much quicker than in the EU. Uh, for example, we've seen the CAT give its judgment within sort of six months of a CMA final merger decision. But one important nuance is that when the CAT does find an issue, that's not the end of the story, because the matter then is remitted back to the CMA, which has to reinvestigate the deal based on the ruling provided by the CAT. And so that process, again, can last several months after the CAT's ruling has been handed down before there is then any sort of resolution. And indeed, the parties may well find, as other parties have also recently found, that at the end of all that, the CMA's new decision, which takes into account the ruling of the CAT, could still simply reach the same overall conclusion on remittal. So in other words, the CMA could still prohibit the deal the second time round. Got it. Thanks so much, Jenny. You know, and so we've gone through 
the detail on this case, but it is just one case. And so I think it's interesting to think a bit about what this means if you're a company sitting out there uh, thinking about doing a deal in a technology market or in a market that otherwise involves you know, sort of nascent competition. So Ricky, tell me, how does this case fit into the broader trends that we're seeing in merger enforcement right now? So in in recent years, we have seen this type of trend growing. We've seen the CMA seeking to assert itself as an important global antitrust authority, including willingness to diverge from its peers in taking a tougher stance when assessing these types of parallel reviews. And the Microsoft Activision case continues that trend. And it seems, in effect, to cement an increasing divergence from the European Commission's approach. That said, there are also cases where the CMA has cleared that other authorities, such as the European Commission, have investigated in more detail, have required remedies. A good example is Meta's acquisition of customer. So it's a bit too simplistic to say that the CMA will always take a hardline approach compared to other authorities. There's definitely more nuance than that. But, you know, one thing we have seen is that the CMA does have a propensity to take a more forward-looking approach than other authorities, particularly when it comes to nascent markets and technology. And therefore, when thinking about these types of deals in nascent markets, it's really it's important to think about how best to engage with different authorities and how to develop an evidence base around how a nascent market is likely to evolve and why in that context a transaction is pro-competitive. I did think that it was really interesting that the CMA in this Microsoft case felt the need to come out publicly with a press release after the commission had issued its decision, effectively confirming that it stood by its own analysis. That's quite unusual, and I think it does raise the question of whether the CMA maybe recognises that its hardline hostility towards behavioural remedies might not be entirely sustainable over time. And I think especially, Ricky, as you said, right, we're going to see more and more deals in these nascent and dynamic markets, and they're going to be raising similar issues. So continued divergence or a continued divergence in particular on behavioural remedies might not be desirable or realistic in years to come. So the FTC hearing in Microsoft, I think, is scheduled for later this summer, Jen, what can we expect to see more than on the U.S. side? Yeah, I mean, the the outcome of the specific case in the U.S. Uh, remains to be seen. I mean, as you said, it's, it's coming up on hearings this summer, which are not in federal court, but are in the FTC's administrative Article Three court, which typically it prefers to federal court. But I think like in the U.K. in particular, this is a, a case that's happening in the context of broadly a more aggressive approach to antitrust enforcement and merger reviews, which is something we have talked about on the podcast before. We are seeing the U.S. agencies increasingly favor litigation to prohibit transactions, you know, as is happening here, in lieu of remedies, and not just behavioral remedies, but any kind of remedy that would fix a transaction instead of going to prohibition. And, you know, Lena Khan, even in the last couple of weeks, has commented about the Microsoft Activision case that that's pending, and in a way that suggests that the FTC is not only pursuing the litigation, but also working on expanding its theories of harm in order to do some of the very forward-looking crystal ball gazing that the CMA has been willing to do. And she said um, that the commission's complaint continues to look at several different theories of harm, including in markets that are still fast-growing and still developing. And that, you know, she feels is very consistent with the FTC's mandate to protect competition, to protect innovation, and to not let incumbents thwart competition and innovation. 
So interesting, Jen, that you mentioned Lena Khan and the rhetoric around pursuing novel theories of harm and crystal ball gazing, because the other recent case that we've been following with interest is the FTC's announcement that it's sued to block the Amgen Horizon deal. And that FTC suit is based on also a relatively novel theory of harm that Amgen, given the widespread adoption of some of its very popular drugs, could offer rebates to insurers and pharmacy benefit managers to effectively force them into favouring Horizon's less widely used products. And I think in order to support that product portfolio theory, which is effectively a form of conglomerate theory of harm, the FTC has pointed to the fact that Amgen has had a history of offering these types of rebates on its best-selling products in exchange for favour treatment for other Amgen drugs on the list of covered medications. Yeah, in, in, indeed, Jenny. And this is just another example of where the FTC is willing to be aggressive right now, willing to pursue theories of harms that maybe would not have been pursued under prior administrations. And, and I think that that is particularly going to be true in sectors that are politically attractive for antitrust enforcement. Um, you know, the FTC focus on pharma is not new in any way, but where it can bring these novel theories of harm in a sector like pharma, it, it's going to do so even in the absence of traditional horizontal or vertical overlaps. And I guess there could be a possible spillover effect of this type of theory in other jurisdictions going forward. I don't know what you think about that, Jenny. I think that's right. Although I do think the facts of this case are probably quite particular and don't necessarily signal that all transactions in the life sciences space are, are now under threat of having to deal with this particular concern. And, and in fact, there's probably also another analogy here with the Microsoft Activision case that we've been discussing in that it appears at least that past commercial behaviour seems to have been a pretty important driver in terms of the concerns that are being pursued by the FTC in this case too. Yeah, and you know, it's it's good to raise the Amgen case, Jenny, because it's one that we're definitely going to be keeping a close eye on if and when it progresses through the U.S. court system. But that case is also really relevant to the next question I wanted to pose to Ricky, which is whether even at this juncture with Microsoft Activision, we can tease out any key learnings for how regulators and how the CMA in particular is going to approach dynamic markets going forward. Yeah, so one area to think about is how authorities actually assess these forward-looking concerns, because it can often be a bit more difficult to do quantitative economic analyses in these types of areas. And therefore, you'll see authorities rely quite heavily on internal documents and third-party views. And, then, and we saw that in Microsoft, where the CMA relied pretty heavily on third-party views around the cloud gaming market. Um, and therefore, there's definitely a piece to think about around how best to do stakeholder management. The other piece is internal documents. Again, the CMA placed a lot of weight on internal documents when assessing the counterfactual, and that underpinned a couple of its key conclusions around how the cloud gaming market would actually evolve. And there, there again, I think there's a lot that can be done to make sure that the internal documents do paint a particular picture, or where they don't, they can be feasibly contextualized in the right way. And, you know, if you're a company sitting here looking at a deal that potentially implicates some of these issues, what is the current thinking on how to build in the right CPs and contractual protections that can mitigate the risks that are inherent in parallel reviews that are potentially going to reach divergent conclusions? I mean, you're right that deal documents do have to cater for this increased uncertainty and unpredictability, for sure. I think that 
always brings with it the difficult question around risk allocation. And I think especially in the types of deals that we've been discussing, clearance can become much more of an all or nothing equation for the parties. I mean, especially if there's no obvious structural fix to the issues that an authority might identify, whether that's a vertical issue or a sort of broader innovation theory of harm. And so deals like the Microsoft one are increasingly the ones where, at least with the CMA, you have to try and win outright. And so in terms of deal documents, I think that means any type of deal that has at least the prospect of going into an in-depth investigation, we are certainly seeing longer outside dates becoming the norm. So, you know, 18 months is not unusual to make sure that the parties at least have flexibility in their antitrust strategy and at least giving them the option to go all the way and in the US, including litigation, if that's needed. So I think that's really important to build in flexibility to deal with these issues as they may emerge. Completely agree with that. And just to end on a maybe on a positive note, we see plenty of deals still getting done, still getting through authorities, cleared or with remedies which are acceptable. And really early planning, increasing deal timetable flexibility and making sure that there's a global coordinated team which can ensure a consistent strategy across different jurisdictions, but also know what works with certain authorities, all of those things are key and means that deals definitely can still get done. Well, that's great because we always like to end on a high note uh, here on the podcast. So this is a really interesting case. I mean, it's done uh, in, in the EU, but still lots to follow in the UK and the US. And if there are major developments there, I'm sure we'll be talking about it more um, on, on the podcast. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Jenny and Ricky, for joining us today uh, to talk about this case. And And to everyone else, thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time with more Essential Antitrust.